Hi, welcome to Sidewalk Talk. I'm Steve Fortunato. This episode, we're talking about excuses. We all make them. We all make them in life. We certainly make them in business. And uh, we're talking to a business consultant today. His name is Larry Midas. Larry, am I pronouncing the name right? I got it right, yes. right? Yeah. Yes, sir, you are. Like, I like Midasize it, but spelled differently. It's M E I T U S. Midas is obviously M I D S. Anyway, uh, so um, Larry is the author of a uh, a book, and the name of the book. It's a great book. Read it. I recommend it. Um, you don't have to own a business to read this book. The name of the book is "We Tried That Once," and other popular excuses that sabotage business success. And uh, Larry's nickname, Leadership Larry. Uh, leads the way and 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 talking to you larry before uh we started the podcast we we discuss how you know obviously business owners or uh, operators you might be the operations manager but to me it's it's also for um someone who is an independent contractor or maybe someone is a a a salesperson a straight commission salesperson uh and so they Actually, maybe they don't own the business, but they really own their own book of business. But it even goes beyond that. We make excuses in everything we do, parenting, whatever it is. Am I close? Am I getting it? Is, is that where you're going with this? It was geared towards business people, but it's really for Absolutely. everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely, okay. Steve. You know, the, the genesis of the book, I, I shame on me, guilty as charged, made the biggest excuse. I kept telling myself for 10 years that I wanted to write a book. And every couple of weeks, I would sell myself on the excuse of why I'm not sitting down to write. So I'm guilty as charged. And then I I woke up one night and I said, you know, what's the common theme here? And you just touched on it. The business clients I've had, the prospects I've met over the years, the businesses I've worked in where I was an employee, but boiling it down to what you just said, just being a human being, we accept and we sell ourselves and sell others on a lot of excuses. And at the end of the day, some of them are reality. I, I, I want to be very clear about that. Some of them are reality, but the majority of them, I have to believe, are not. They just become a convenience. You know, almost every human on the planet on December 31st makes up one or two or three New Year's resolutions. And then when you run into them a few months later and you say, hey, how's it going? How, you know, did you do those things? No. But let me tell you why, you know. The cat ran away, you know, the sun didn't set, you know, I lost my job and, and here comes this flow of excuses. And it's like, well, that might be true, but how did you manage through that situation? And then when it comes to businesses and business people and, and companies, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with my clients looking at the best practices of really successful, for the most part, larger companies and saying, how do we scale that down to the size of your company? Oh, you know, we can't do that. We're not Amazon. We're not Netflix. We're not Sam's Club. You know, we're not, uh, you know, Southwest Airlines. You don't have to be. If, if it worked in that huge model, scale it down, bring it to use, throw away that excuse of we're not big enough. We're not smart enough. We don't have enough the right people on our staff. All that's within our control if we decide we're going to control it. So that, that's exactly where this goes. We're human beings. We make excuses every day. Some of them are legitimate. I think the majority of them really aren't. Yeah, we're human beings. We're imperfect. One of the things we always talk about is don't be perfect, be human. So yeah. accept your faults, you know. Um, but I think what I'm getting out of it is recognize that one of 
a human characteristic would be to make excuses. That's what we do. And if you can recognize that, you know what you just did, you just made an excuse. It, that's a, that's like a paradigm, right? Yeah. And, and the way I get that out of some people, Steve, including myself, including my family, like when I'm with a client and they're really jazzed up about some concept for their business, I'll stop them in their tracks and say, okay, answer this question. Is that an opportunity or is that a distraction? Don't even think, just answer. And a lot of times they go, oh, that's a distraction. Why? Well, because I'm interested in that. It's my hobby. It's, it's my passion. It's my this, it's my that. Everybody else is doing it. We can kind of probe the same way on excuses with what I just said. If I think I'm getting an excuse from someone, I'll stop them in their tracks and say, excuse or reality. Hmm. And most of the time they lean back and go, yeah, you're right. I'm making up an excuse for not getting this done, for not trying this, for not doing this. Um, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of life is about time management. How we, you know, we have the same 24, 7, 365 as everybody else around the world. You know, what are you keeping? What are you throwing away? Uh, but but the, the more people buy into a mentality of excuses, the easier it is to stay there. It's like every other habit we have. You stop exercising, it's hard to get back. If you eat poorly, it's hard to get back to eating well. If you know, stop going to church or whatever you have as a preference in your life that that's healthy, and you stop, it's tough to get back. So, you know, you know, excuses are habits, and it's like any other habit. If you stop making excuses for a month for thirty days, chances are you're going to make fewer excuses moving forward because you've gotten into a different lane. Well, if someone doesn't, and Larry, the name of Larry's business, we're speaking with Larry Midas, the author of "We Tried That Once" and other popular excuses that sabotage business success. You are a uh, a business consultant. So speaking of strategy, is the is the name of your business. Yes. So okay, so you're meeting with a client, and you're there to say, is that an excuse? Is that what about the person that's by themselves? Okay, they're not sitting in front of you. How can they adjust their brain or adjust their thinking to recognize I just made an excuse? Can they do oh. it by themselves? Oh, absolutely. How, how do you, how do you? Absolutely. Part of it's a little self-taught self-education. I'm a big believer in, you know, birds of a feather. If you hang around people that create excuses all day long, you're going to create excuses all day long. If you start hanging with people and, and, and again, you know, we're recording this during COVID time, hanging might mean zoom. It might be a phone call, but if, if you start communicating with people who aren't going to tolerate excuses. That doesn't mean they're nasty about it. It just means they look you right in the eye and go, Larry, dude, come on. That's an excuse. I can smell that 10 miles away. You're going to start to alter your, your be- behavior. Um, but go back to the New Year's resolution comment I made a few years ago. One of the easiest things to do, quote unquote easy, that I like to do all the time is when you've got these ideas for progress or projects, something in your personal life, your professional life, tell other people. Don't keep it a secret. Because a great way to get yourself off the dime is just like that New Year's resolution. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm practicing what I'm what I'm preaching here today, Steve. When I decided my feet hit the ground one morning and I said, I'm going to write a book, I told as many people as I could. I called them, I texted them, I emailed them, and I asked them, I said, do me a favor. Every time you come across me, ask me how I'm doing with the book. Now, if nobody knew I wanted to write a book and nobody wanted to help me be accountable, there still might not be the book you're holding in your hand. 
But when I would get people pinging me going, hey, Blair, how's the book? Hey, I want to read the book before it gets released. Hey, do you need any help with editing? Hey, hey, hey. I thought, you know what? Not only do I have to deliver to myself on my own word, I have to deliver to all these other people or I'm a hypocrite. So, you know, one way to break that mold is, is start talking to other people about if you want to change careers, if, if you want to hire a certain type of person, if you want to expand your product line or, or your line card as a salesperson, whatever it is, start telling other people. A, they'll hold you accountable. B, they can probably connect you to some really great resources. You touched in what you just talked about on, on you want to hire X amount of people. I'm sure you're getting it. Now, I know we're getting it at Shovel the Sidewalk with, with our clients. I've, I mean, it is always, I would say it's always their uh, businesses, for us small businesses, number one problem would be recruiting and retention. Finding that those perfect candidates. And now the latest report, the time of this recording, it's early April of, of 2021. And you had mentioned uh, the COVID situation. It, and while unemployment is lower than it was when, when COVID hit in uh, a year ago, um, it's still not as low as pre-COVID. So pre-COVID, we're around 4%. Now, I think we're up over 6%, 7%. But the number of open jobs in America is at a two-year high, which COVID's only a year old. So this is pre-COVID. So now we're they're back to panic. I need to hire these four, these five, this one. We need these people. What do I do? Can we get these people next week? And it doesn't work that way, right? Right. You mentioned in the book and you talk about, you know, in having in a culture, having the culture in the in the in the workplace. And then how do we express it? Can you expand on how important work culture is? Because to me, we take it to the employer brand. What is that employer brand? Absolutely. And, and you know, I, again, I don't want to sound like a guy without a, a heart and a soul, but the reality is the companies that were unable to attract quality candidates to hire for any position in any sector, white collar, blue collar, privately held, publicly traded, large, medium, small, national, international, it doesn't matter. If you couldn't attract quality candidates long before COVID, it shouldn't be any surprise that you can't attract them now because the, the cultural piece is the most complicated piece. And in my opinion, the most important piece, culture trumps strategy every single day. When I say strategy, speaking of strategy, people get all nervous. Oh my gosh, strategy, that sounds really complicated. Strategy is a flexible plan, period. But if you don't have one, and as a leader, if you don't articulate one and your people don't understand that there is one and they can't repeat it and act upon it, you've got some serious operational and, and cultural issues. What really concerns me, Steve, when you look at the data and, and I've traveled around the country speaking about this particular topic, I, I work with employers. I, I speak in seminars and lectures about recruiting, hiring, retaining, managing and promoting millennials and now on the cusp of that, we're starting to get Generation Z creep in, the youngest workers in the American workforce. Mm -hmm. And those two together, millennials and Zs, make up the largest percentage of the, of the United States workforce right now. And, and it'll be that way for decades. The boomers, the Xers, you know, the, we're, we're, we're retiring, we're dying, mm -hmm. okay? But millennials and Generation Z self-report and say, you know what? 
if I don't get a good vibe off that company's culture, which starts ironically at their website, if it's outdated, if there's a broken link, if they're not on Twitter, if they're not on LinkedIn, if, if they're not on Instagram, I don't think I want to work there. And unfortunately, that's what it's, what, it's, what it's come to. There's a high level of social consciousness and awareness among those two generations. They'd rather make less money, but work for a company that takes better care of the society around it, the community around it. They want to walk out of work and say, I work at the XYZ company and you know we're out there feeding the hungry or building homes with habitat or something like that. They're really compassionate, caring generations and they're very, very mistrusting of corporate America. Why? Because not long ago, 07, 08, 09, they saw their parents, their friends' parents, their aunts and uncles, and their grandparents lose everything, including their pensions, when we had that economic in implosion. And, and they basically blame corporations and say, like, you know what? You didn't protect my parents. You know, nobody, you, you didn't see that coming. You looked out for yourself. So that's a long-winded answer, but it's absolutely accurate. Companies shouldn't have to spend money on advertising to recruit. Their, their employees should be their best ambassadors saying, let me tell you why you need to work where I work. Come in and talk to us. Now, I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since anybody ever came up to me or my wife or our children and said, hey, you need to work on my team. Come and see me at work. What does that tell you? People are going to work. They're collecting a paycheck. They're going home. They're not in love with, with, with their, their culture. Any place of business, the number one uh, recruitment tool would be, I completely agree with you, would be the referral business. It would be, I work here. It's great. You should work here too. This is what the culture is like. This is what is. Um, now, where I would take exception would be on the advertising side. It would be fantastic if we never had to advertise uh, reality is we can't have every single, depends on the business, but we can't have every single brand ambassador, which is our employees, which are the best go knocking on everybody's doors. But that would be the best is to, to, for them to voice it socially. I mean, really, I mean, in real life, socially, and then of course, social media, that is, <laughs> that is how it works. And if you can, Here's the other thing I say about that. When you utilize your employees to spread the message, um, it's way better than having, you know, manager A say, talk to me. It's I'd much rather, no offense, but I want to hear from the peers. I want to hear from those people I'm going to be working with. It, I want to hear from the manager, but those peers are the best brand ambassadors. But when you do that, and when you talk to the employees and say, I really want you to be our, literally be our brand, brand ambassador. I mean, you love working here. I love you to tell people. It also helps in retention mm -hmm. because those employees are like, you think that much of me, that you literally want me to represent you and the company. I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. And then when you take the next step and you utilize your employees in your marketing, your employer brand marketing, it's the Hollywood effect. Not only do you think a lot of me, which is incredible, I really am proud of that and I'm proud to represent you. And I take that very seriously, but that's pretty cool that you have me in whatever X uh, 
medium that you utilize, whatever platform it is, I'm involved in it. And guess what? My mom thinks it's really cool. Uh, my husband, wife, sister, relatives, friends, neighbors, they all think that's really, really cool. And then that, again, them sharing that information with others, it is a big, it's a big snowball effect. So we call it Hollywood, right? It's like, it's cool, man. I'm on whatever I am. And so I'm all with you. Brand ambassadors, the best brand ambassadors are the employees. And if there's a way that businesses can utilize them, um, they need to figure out how to, how to best do that. Because the other oh. thing that happens is then others employees are like, what about me? I, I think it's great here too. How can I help you? And then how often does, do the owners, leaders, managers of, of a company ever say to their employees, how strongly do you feel and do you believe about working here? And would you be willing to go out and, and spread the word? That mm -hmm. conversation doesn't happen. You know, um, I'm involved with a company called Today's Mood. I'm, I'm a partner consultant to them, which is all about employee engagement and, and measuring through technology. It's, depending on what you read, 75 to 80% of the workforce pre-COVID is disengaged at work, which means I show up, I punch in, I do my job, I punch out, maybe even a little bit early on some days, I get my check, I don't want to know anything else. And then we wonder why businesses aren't getting the result they want. Two great local examples, again, going back to what we said earlier, this can be done, it can be done locally. You think about companies like Wegmans and West Term, right? Years ago, a friend of mine called me up and, and she was a little bit upset. She said, Larry, I know you have contacts at Wegmans. She goes, my son applied for his first job, the push carts. They wouldn't hire him. She goes, can't you make a phone call for me? I said, look, I know your son. He's a lovely young man. I also know the culture at Wegmans. He needs to apply somewhere else. They will not force fit him into their mentality. And quite honestly, he doesn't fit their mentality. He's not positive. He's not happy. He's not a go-getter. He doesn't want to be productive. And, and there's 200 kids behind him who want to work there. They'll talk to the next kid. No offense to your son. The other great example is, is West Herb. Uh, Scott Beeler's a friend. Uh, we're a West Herb family. But they have 28 stores now across the state. And when you go into every store, the same vibe, the same energy, the same electricity is in the air. It doesn't matter if you're in Buffalo, Rochester, it doesn't matter. And, and, you, and it almost feels like, are they cloning these people in the back room? Like, you know, on the high lift? Like, how does this happen? They hire to the culture. Mm -hmm. Two key drivers at West Herb, ethics and empathy. If you're not ethical, you can't work here. If you break our ethical structure, you're gone. If you can't be empathetic towards another human being, realistically, honestly, compassionately, you're not going to get hired here. They will teach you everything else. But if you don't bring those two cards to the party, they keep looking. Um, years ago, there was a full page four color ad on the back of the Buffalo News one December close to Christmas time. It was an open letter from the employees of West Herd to the owners. I took that letter, I folded it up, that ad, and I was due for an oil change. I went to the dealership, the West Herd dealership. They, the sales service director didn't know me from Adam. Got my car logged in and I slid the ad across the desk and I said, you know, not for nothing, but I just got to wonder this full page ad, you know, was this marketing campaign, promotional advertising, you know, somebody dreamed this up, you know, what's the deal with this? He looked at me and he said, Mr. Midas, he didn't call me Larry, Mr. Midas, I got to tell you something. This is the seventh dealership I've worked at and I hope I die here. He said, every single word in that ad is the truth. I work for phenomenal people. That doesn't happen overnight. Now, the unfortunate right. part, 
I get a lot of people that say, oh, can we do strategic planning and culture over lunch? Like right. maybe an hour or two. Right. No. Yeah. No, thanks for lunch. Uh, every, every study I've ever read in my own practical experience tells me that if you're really going to turn your culture, it takes two to three years. Mm. Just think about how the human brain is geared again. Steve comes to work. He's the owner. He starts singing a certain tune. Everybody goes, oh yeah, flavor of the month. That This too shall pass. Remember A, B, C, D, E, F, and G that he used to talk to us about? Those are all gone. So they listen with one ear. They don't take action. They don't buy in. But once they see Steve repeating himself and, and enforcing the code, like Wester, ethics and empathy, and, 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 and people go, I guess we're staying in this lane, all of a sudden, some people self-select out of the company and go, I'm not comfortable here anymore because this is the real deal. Like he's telling us, we're telling each other how this is going to go down. We're telling the community, the world, this is who our company is. And that makes some people uncomfortable, but it takes that long. And, and, and yes, it's harder to hire that way because it's harder to find people that, that fit that mindset. But the, the upside, the trade-off is once you've got them, they stay forever. Yeah, retention. Or as long as they want to. Now, here's an interesting stat tied to that story. The uh, average annual turnaround, if you will, in the automotive sales position in the auto industry in the United States every year is 92%. 92% turnover. If you look at the, I think, 50 plus year history of West Her, their retention of sales professionals is 92%. Wow. Only 8% leave. And you go, well, they're selling the same cars with the same incentives at the same price points in the same markets. How does that happen? It's all about culture. Yeah. yeah and I, what my takeaway is culture is on purpose. Culture Absolutely. isn't just, it's oh, not a, we have a great culture. No. <laughs> well, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. If you don't know how it happened, you're asleep at the wheel. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe negative or poor cultures can happen. Without us, I mean, no one has a strategy. I would hope that says we're going to have a really crappy culture. Yeah, you know, I guess a, a bad culture would happen if you don't plan on having a, a positive culture. Right, you know, and then that bad that bad culture is lined up right next to a low or no or negative profitability. I ask business mm -hmm. people all the time. Let's just be clear: Are you in business to be profitable? Because maybe you're not, because if you need to lose money in this enterprise because of money you're making somewhere else and you're trying to get it to balance on a, on a, on a tax return, I get it. But most business people go, well, yeah, that's why I went into business to be profitable and everything else is, is, is connected to that. And then the people part, I, I've always said people are your number one resource in any organization. I, I, I would say to Steve, the business owner, okay, Steve, so tomorrow you walk in, you turn on the lights, you got a brand new building, you got great technology, you got superior advertising and marketing, but you're here by yourself. How successful will you be? Well, I, I can't do this alone. Bingo. Bingo. You, not only do you need good people, you need great people. Now, go back to the recruiting for a second. Sometimes I really frustrate my clients, because I'm not an executive headhunter, I'm not a search agency, but I will help them find and, and bring in and onboard talent. And I always slow them down because I tell them, look, we're looking for a rock star who can play in your band. Maybe not lead guitar, but they can play rhythm guitar. Maybe someday they'll be the lead and it's going to take longer to find them. But once you find them, they're going to stick. And guess what? They're going to start telling their friends, their associates, 
who think a lot like them about your company. So down the road, it might get a little bit easier, but I'd rather spend an extra three months recruiting and, and, and keep somebody for five, six, seven, eight years than hire the third person in the door and eight weeks later, they're gone. But Larry, I need them by next week. Should have seen that coming, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are we, what am I going to pipeline what, of people? What are we going to do? I, 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 you know, the, uh, especially in the bigger ones, trickling down, you got to hire 10 people by next Tuesday, but Larry, I got to hire 10 people by next Tuesday. Now I personally know that nine and a half of them aren't going to make it. There's a small percentage chance that, that one of those people might make it, but I got to do it. Yeah. And ironically, uh, his ears are probably ringing. I'll, I'll mention Scott Beeler again at Westhurst. Scott told me about six months ago, the number one thing he does every day, and he's got a lot on his plate, he's probably, now they probably have 15, 1600 employees. He said, every day I'm out with my scope up looking for our next great hire. He's like the Geico commercial. Is it the waitress? Is it the waiter? Is it the clerk at the gas station? Who is it who's genuine? who has a spark in their eye, who's got some energy, who might be willing to listen to what this automotive industry is about. How do we find them? And we just keep stacking them up. So, you know, and, and quite honestly, I hope I'm not telling tales out of school. Scott has said this publicly. On most given days, most given weeks, they've got between 50 and 60 openings in that organization. Wow. So no one's ever filled right. to capacity. Yeah. But if you're not looking, you're not going to find. Right. It's interesting you mentioned the Geico commercial. What Geico commercial are you referencing? Where the guy, I, I think it was Geico, the guy's in a restaurant basically, and he's, yeah. and, you know, he's, he's, he's checking out and he gives the, the, uh, the cashier his card and says, right. hey, if you ever want to switch careers, right, right. you know, you're nice, you're pleasant, you're yeah. professional, call yeah. me. Customer service. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Um, awesome. Great, great feedback. I, I do want to back to your book on, on some of these other uh, topics. You know, I want, I can't remember the chapter. I'm looking at your book here, but there was, it's, it's something we always have conversations about that people don't like change. Sometimes change is good. I just remember many years ago, uh, I don't remember if I was the sales manager or if I was a sales rep at the time, but our top, we uh, remember move my cheese, who moved my cheese or move my oh, cheese, yeah. who moved my cheese, right? That was the big thing. It was in the nineties. And uh so we all read it and we're like, yeah, you got to accept change. Change is good. You got to accept change. And our top biller was like, I, you're right. You're right. Thanks for this book. I need to change. I need to quit. <laughs> she, <laughs> she quit. <laughs> you know, they lost, yeah, they lost the top biller. That was kind of a big change, but um, uh, I guess people instead of change on a positive manner, will will come up with an excuse, right? Absolutely. Because it's the easiest thing to do or tell you why I can't change. Here's why we can't change. We've been doing it this way since 1950. I had a client one time in, in, uh, in the manufacturing industry and, you know, they're a little bit old school yeah. and, and tough to recruit to. And, and every time I made a suggestion is we've never done that before. We've never tried that before. They hadn't had a loan from a bank ever. Wow. Ever. And they were proud of that. And they should be. I said to the owner, Go to the bank on Monday, borrow $10,000 because you won't sleep. Go back on Wednesday and give them the money back. But it's going to be documented that you borrowed and you're repaid. Mm -hmm. Don't wait for your back to be up against the wall. After I was no longer engaged there, <laughs> probably all my ideas, I stopped in one day and he was like, you're not going to believe what happened. Lost these clients that weren't signed to contracts. Bank won't give me any money. He went down the list that I left him of the things I thought might go wrong. 
And it was just because, you know, we've done it one way since 1955. Yeah, if, if you're not thinking about change, planning change, trying to orchestrate change every, every day of your life, you're, you're taking a little, little baby steps towards potential failure as business people and people in general. You know, uh, COVID forced me to make a big life. Well, to me, it was a big lifestyle change at the time. I joined my first gym. I was 18 years old and I swore I'd never work out at home. I worked out at gyms for 42 years. So do the math. I'm not 35. My wife always worked out at home. COVID hit. I went down to the basement. I started working out. I called the gym six months later. I said, send me my money back. I'm not coming back. Yeah. You know, I, I broke a 42 year habit. And just said, you know, I'm going to look under this rock and see how it works out. Um, but I had to, I had to make that decision. I had to tell other people, as we, as we shared earlier. But you're, you're right. Change is difficult for, for people. But boy, if we learned anything in, in 2020 and, and this first quarter of 21, is we've got to be flexible. And there's all those buzzwords out there: nimble, flexible, adjustable, pivot. You know, uh, the only other time I heard pivot so much in, in my life was watching an NBA basketball game. And now everyone's pivoting. Yeah. Um, but, but the it's reality, true. It's true. Yeah, it, it's true. If, if you can't think what if, how come, what, what if we can't make what we made yesterday, tomorrow? Yeah. What if we can't make payroll? What if we have a hard time hiring people because they're making pretty good money staying home? We as people and business people have to start answering more of those what if scenarios in, in our heads. Yeah. And build a culture. Again, you can build a culture that drives on change, but it's a daily process. You know, one of my favorite interview questions to ask somebody is, you know, what's the biggest change you drove at your last place of employment? A lot of people go, well, what was in charge of change? What? We're all in charge of change. You don't need a title to come in with an idea. Uh, one of the best jobs I ever had, honestly, Steve, I, I worked for 10 years uh, for the Bryant and Stratton system of, of colleges. Like my second day there, the campus director called me in at the campus I was working at. And he said, let's just be clear. He said, um, we want to know everything you know, and we want to know every thought that you have. Because even though we've been doing this 150 years, it doesn't mean we've got it figured out. Now, ironically, and people thought it was crazy at the time, the next day, the same gentleman called me into a conference room, sat across the table from me, looked at me and said, I'm going to ask you one question. I said, okay. I got a little nervous. It's like day three on the job. He said, if we have a disagreement, Larry, who's going to win? I looked him in the eye and I said, Bill, I'm going to win. He got a little bit red. He looked like a former military guy. There was a little bit of steam coming out of his ears. He leaned in and he said, let me ask you one more time, Larry, if we have a disagreement, who do you think could win? I said, I fully intend to win. He pushed back from the table. He said, last time I'm going to ask you, Larry, we have a disagreement. Who's going to win? I leaned in and I said, Bill, I fully expect to win. If, if I didn't, would you hire someone that spineless? Right. He stood up, he shook my hand and he said, we're going to be just fine. Right. He said, yeah. we're going to be just fine. I want to know what you think. He only, his only caveat, which I totally agreed with was if you ever come in complaining, come in with a possible solution. Right. Don't just dump in my office and turn around and leave. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, you've been there. Some people, it, it's it, again, it, it comes down. I think a look at it as what you brought up what's making me realize it's, it's an excuse, you know, yes, men, another cliche, but a lot of people want 
people, others to just say yes, like, hey, that's a good idea. Well, and don't want to hear the other. They say they do, but they really don't want to. I think I, I do that sometimes too. I'm like, this is, I got it. This is great. I've got a great idea. This is going to drive you or drive us or whatever it is. And then someone makes a really good point and it picks at it and you're like, uh, and you want to fight back at it. That's a tough thing to overcome is to not, I mean, you definitely don't want to surround yourself with just people that say yes and agree with everything. You have to want to hear others and other ideas. Other, and that's what, that's what creates success. There's no way you can do things on your own. It's people that disagree with you or have other ideas or concepts, right? I mean, that is a, to me, that's an excuse thing. It's a, it's, it's some kind of excuse to say, well, that person's only, that person's only been doing this for six months. I've been doing it for 40 years. Right. And I'll be honest with you. I, again, apply it to myself. I, I got obviously so close to my book, writing my book for about a year uh-huh. that I, I approached 25 people before it went to publication, people I trusted and respected their opinion. I said, do me a favor, read the book. I figured half of them would. And sure enough, 12 of the 25 read the book. And I got some feedback on, you know, this passage doesn't make sense to me. This area needs more, more beef. This, this got to be dialed down a little bit. And I said to myself, if I really want this thing to fly, I've really got to listen carefully to what they're telling me, especially if there's the same th- recurring theme on some of the points and, you know, it, it was an exercise in sitting back and going, okay, I don't know everything. I know I don't know everything. And if you're interpreting my message this way, you're probably right. I'm probably too close to it. And we made those tweaks. And the good news is, knock on my laptop, you know, since the book's been out since October, all the feedback's been extremely positive. So I'm, 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 I'm thankful. I'm grateful. Um, I'm, I'm humbled by, by how many people were willing to, to step up and, and, and help me get this done. But I had to ask for help. Yeah, you bring up the, you. you um, there's a cliche for that too, and I can't remember what it is. Something about being inside the bottle. It's hard to see. We yeah. really do. This is where outsiders, even not just owners, but uh, people that are within that company, sometimes it's really hard to take a honest look and bringing in that outside here's what i find a lot of times when we you know we focus obviously on marketing but a lot of times we help them with operations or or simple things that are simple and they can handle but when you're on that inside it's like you don't see it it's like you're blinded and what i find a lot of times is we will regurgitate to them the information that they gave us and now they hear it in a different way and they take it in or like, this is great. And it's like, you have the answers. You really do. But having that outsider can help you find them. I've always said as a consultant, you know, it's the forest and the trees. I say to people, look, you're in the forest every day with the trees. Yeah. So you're walking into trees, banging your head. You don't even know they're trees. I'm flying over your forest in a helicopter going, stop walking, Steve Tree. Stop walking, Steve Quicksand. Yeah. Because you just, you get numb. You get numb. I mean, it's as simple as I always say to people, did you drive to work today? Mm-hmm. How many red lights did you go? Did you hit? And how many stop signs? Oh, I don't know. I take the same route every day. I said, that's the problem. Yeah. You're on autopilot. One, one of the things I used to hate when my kids were growing up really about, about driving vacations was you get so stressed out because you really have to pay attention because you really don't know where you are. 
And in some of these major cities, you know, you make one lane change wrong and, you know, you just lost eight hours. And <laughs> when, when you're when you're here in, in comfy, cozy Western New York, a lot of us are on autopilot when we're, we're driving. Business and life are the same way. We, we're creatures of habit. The number one thing our brain can do, and I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I've never played one on TV, but the number one thing our brain can do is recognize patterns. So are you playing a looped pattern in your brain that says excuses are okay, or are you playing a pattern that says excuses aren't acceptable anymore? There was a part in your book, uh, you referenced, uh, I think you referenced Edison, you definitely referenced Michael Jordan and some other people that were told no, or they suck. They're not smart yeah. enough. Michael Jordan didn't make his varsity basketball team. Yeah. Um, what, what, what is your message? What is the message? What are you getting at when you talk about that? I think you have to be realistically optimistic. You know, and I, I love daydreaming. I think I'm a daydreamer, but sometimes you, you have to do it within certain bounds. And then some of my chapters overlap with that message because, um, including we try that once, because no matter what path you go down, I think you got to say, here's how much money we can throw against this. Here's much, how much time and talent we can throw against this. And then the accounting folks listening to your, your podcast are going to go, oh yeah, that's called sunk cost. I understand that business term. It's money we never expect to make back. We're, we're investing it. We're rolling the dice for gambling. It's sunk money, sunk cost. But when, when it comes to driving change or creating products or services, we, we have to think with those um, parameters. You know, I, I've worked with some clients who had some really, really good ideas and they saw massive sales in their minds and dollar figures. And usually my first pushback is, how's your throughput? How's your inventory control? Do you have enough people here? What if you got 10,000 orders in the first hour? Could you produce it? Well, no. Okay, so I still love your idea, but now we got to slow ourselves down a little bit mm -hmm. because you could put yourself out of business. Yep. Damage your, damage your reputation. Um, but there comes a point in time where you have to look and say, this is going to fly. Many, many years ago, uh, for about 11 years of my life, I sold real estate. I was a broker. And I'll never forget, I had a commercial deal with, with, with a, a multimillionaire. I mean, th this guy's life was a movie. He had every cool career and investment that you'd want to make. And he called me one day and he said, I'm going to develop a gourmet bagel. I'm going to put every other bagel out of business. I'm going to do it right here in Western New York. Here's the space I need. I'm going to find the people. But on day one, he knew what he would spend for space, what he would spend to recruit talent away from, from top competitors, how he would legally protect those people, how much he would pay them if his, if his enterprise tanked and they couldn't go back to the job they left. He had it all figured out on day one. And he said, from the time I get the key and turn it in the lock the first time, this is a one-year project. If sales and, and shelf space penetration in grocery stores are not at X number a year from now, we turn off the lights, we lock the door, we get rid of the space, and I help those people get back to, to other jobs. And sure as, sure, sure as you know what, a year to the day, he turned off the lights, he locked the door, couldn't make it happen. But he could have said, you know, I'm going to hang in there another seven years. Right. And, and go in the red and, and take out 20 loans because, right. you know, I really think I'm close. So somewhere in that dream and, and that, that change mode and that excitement, there's got to be that dose of reality. The Goo Goo Dolls I mentioned in the book, the last yeah, time we saw right. live, yeah. my wife and I, they told that story on stage. 
Johnny mm-hmm. Resnick said, look, I'm sitting on a third hand used couch in a second hand used apartment with a pencil and a legal pad. And, and I remember him saying, I don't necessarily proclaim to believe in, in God, but I was looking for some intervention from somewhere. And he said, and I actually said out loud, I need some help here. I need some inspiration. He said, I picked up a pencil. I wrote the song name. And like within a week, they were rock stars after, uh-huh. after a decade of toiling in, in, in local bars with no name recognition. And, and he said, you know what, I'll never forget it. He goes, we didn't get any better looking, but we were chick magnets and we certainly got a lot wealthier. That's interesting. I mean, right now I'd love to play second base for the New York Yankees, right? But I have to realize that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. How, it's because you never want to discourage somebody. Right. And, and I find, and, and that's, what's difficult. Maybe that's what leader, maybe that's a big part of leadership is, is helping people discover that strength and getting them to expand on their strength. I was talking about Tiger Woods, great, greatest golfer of all time. His, uh, from what I understand, his, his long game was his best part of his game. I mean, obviously he can output anybody the short game, wasn't as good so where did he put all his emphasis in his work on his long game to get even better at what he was great at i mean he's great at everything you know but you think oh he's going to work on his short game so how i think part of it is helping people or helping yourself identify what is what you're really are strong at and what you can expand on and really develop and if your dream is involves one of your weaknesses that's just not, then that's probably not reality. You know, you won't, how, so what's your advice to somebody and how to help decide what is reality and what's not? I know I can't play second base for the New York Yankees. Well, that, that's a great point. And in, in a lot of lectures that I give, and I've, I've taught at many colleges over the years, um, we talk exactly about that on some days and we say, and then this concept really came from a friend of mine, Jack Zinger. Jack is probably close to 90 years old, 50 plus years of HR and organizational design experience and had the pleasure of spending a few days with, with Jack a number of years ago and, and just learning from him, just a phenomenal human being, great, great author, great, great business person. But in, in one of his books called The Extraordinary Leader, Jack talked about, we always have to sort of look at what does the organization need today? Because it might be different than what it needed last month. And it's certainly going to be different than what it needs next year. So what does the organization need? Me as a person, as an employee, as an individual, what are my competencies? And then that third bubble that you just alluded to, what are my passions? And you know what's unique, Steve, and a little bit disappointing about, I think, in the, the American culture, the North American culture, we rarely talk to people about their passions. Yeah. It's a word you don't hear often. Yeah. But the caveat to your point is, just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you're competent at it. So the question becomes what we just said five minutes ago. At the personal level, how much time, effort, energy, money am I willing to invest to get myself competent so I can pursue my passion? Or do I just have a, a hobby that I'm really jazzed about? The unfortunate thing I think about our culture in, in, in America, and, and I have a friend who's a financial planner and he talks about this a lot. He said, you know, we've kind of got it backwards. We tell ourselves as Americans, if I work hard enough and long enough and I save enough money and I stay healthy, I can someday get to retire and do what I really want to do. Yeah. 
And I sit there going, why are we doing like what we really wanted to do the day after we got out of high school or the day after we got out of college? So this is a whole different tangent, but I think we got to go way back. And I'm a guy who's been around higher education now for 25 years in some way, shape or form. We've got to go back to the grade school, kindergarten level and rethink how we're possession, positioning messages about work, yeah. about certain industries, about money, about savings, about all of that, because, you know, kids are coming out of college, shouldn't call them kids, young adults with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, totally misunderstanding what, what they want to do or what they could do. And, and highly frustrated. The millennial generation right now has $1.6 trillion in educational debt, trillion. And so when I counsel employers about, you know, why is Larry the millennial telling me next week he wants to be the CEO? It's because Larry the millennial, millennial knows he owes the bank 140 grand for college. And that economic pressure is accelerating the, 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 the path that we need to be on to be successful. You know, uh, I, I mentioned I sold real estate for 11 or 12 years. The, the market's been crazy, um, but the reality is a lot of millennials are making enough money to put a down payment down on a house, but their credit is not good because of their debt. And they haven't been able to save anything for a down payment on a house because they're treading water paying their monthly bills. So we, we've created this economic ecosystem that's not working anymore. Well, that would be a, um, a re employer a recruitment tool would certainly be to, uh, well, not just tuition reimbursement for, but, but to help you pay down your debt. Pay down, you know, come here. Well, great we'll point. Great point. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a financial planner, but I have seen there there's been some experimentation around the country as a recruiting tool where some companies are saying, if we're doing a matching 401k, let's say it's 5% match, we're going to throw two and a half percent automatically against your 401k savings. And we're automatically, so you don't have to do it, taking the other two and a half percent and, and moving that over towards your, your student loan debt. Hmm. I'm seeing more companies offering student loan debt relief as an, as a retention tool or an attraction and retention tool. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense because of what you just described what's going on in our, in the North American society with the kids that are six figures in debt when they come out of school, it's a, Hey, you put that emphasis on there. You got yourself that education and we like you. So we're going to help you pay off that debt. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it's a recruitment tool. All right. So, Again, um, his name is Larry Midas, the name of the book. And uh, again, you can get it anywhere, Amazon, whatever, right? We can, yep. we can wherever Barnes we want to buy our books. The name of it is We Tried That Once and Other Popular Excuses That Sabotage Business Success. And I would even change it and Other Popular Excuses That Sabotage Success or Happiness. Sabotage, you know, Popular Excuses That Sabotage Happiness. I, I think it, this is a, this is a type of book that, again, obviously if you're in business in any capacity, it makes sense. But even if you're not um, it's just, a, it's, it's, and I think some of it is, is common sense, Larry. I think a lot of times we, <laughs> we talked about businesses that are on the inside and can't look at and need an outsider. It's like, you're the outsider saying, knocking on the, on our head saying, uh, we're like, Oh yeah, that's right. 
Oh, yeah. You know, I, I have a nephew that lives in uh, in Maryland and he grew up here and he's he's actually one of my godsons. And I saw him a few months ago and I said, Brian, what you just said to me, you should you should trademark and at least turn into a bumper sticker. We we're having a conversation about these types of topics. Hmm. And he said, you know what I've learned, Uncle Larry, now that I'm getting a little bit older and experienced, common sense isn't common. That's right. It's, it's yeah. not. It's gone to the wayside, um, yeah. un unfortunately. Um, but, you know, like, like we said earlier, if, if we have people that can help us think, help us decide, bring resources to us and we bring resources to them, I, I just think it makes life so much easier. I'm a total believer in, you know, you, the amount of your reward is going to be proportionately related to your, your, your comfort level with risk. I know some people that want to know what every day is going to look like, what every dollar is going to look like, and I totally respect that. Uh, quite honestly, the reason I became an entrepreneur and, and, and I've been consulting 15 years, 11 years, uh, the last 11 years on my own, it had nothing to do with money. It had everything to do with freedom. While my kids were younger and growing up, I wanted to be able to flex my time so I could be with them for sporting events and dance recitals and school plays. And when you have, as my, my late mom used to say, a real job, <laughs> you can't leave work every day at two o'clock to go to coach lacrosse. You can't. Even if you got a ton of PTO saved up, it's just not, this is just not gonna happen. Um, and, and God bless my wife, a phenomenal human being because she's allowed me to be an entrepreneur and, and walked next to me and encouraged me and saw my wins and saw my, my failures. And, and I'll be honest with you, the, there's a number of people when I told them I'm gonna write a book, they laughed at me because only 1% of the humans on the planet are published authors. They said, yeah, the odds are stacked against you. It's not gonna happen. Boy, that was all the fire I needed yeah. to, make sure, to make sure I didn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I we started Shovel the Sidewalk nine years ago and uh, my, a lot of my friends were like, that is the dumbest name I've ever heard. And I said, that's exactly why I'm going to keep it. Yeah. You know, so. Thank you very much. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate you, Larry. Uh, great stuff. Again, we tried that once and other popular excuses that sabotage business success uh, by leadership, Larry Midas. Uh, you can, and, and, or if you're in business and, and, and want to contact Larry, Larry, is there a, a way to contact you email or something you want to give out sure, there? Sure, I'm an open to? book. It's all online anyways. Okay. Uh, my, my email address is leadership, Larry, all mm -hmm. one word, leadership, Larry at Gmail. My, uh, my direct number is 716-901-4352. I will not ask you if your car warranty is expired. Uh, there you go. Uh, business consultant, name of his business is Speaking of Strategy. All right. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, everybody out there for uh, listening, watching, participating. If you have somebody or it has a story that needs to be shared, or you have a story that needs to be shared. Uh, our website is shovelthesidewalk.com. We have an area in there that you can just put your contact information and we'll get a hold of you. And if it's a share a story of inspiration, information, or education, similar to Larry's story, then uh, let us know and, and we'll put you on the next podcast. So thanks again, Larry. Thank you Thanks, out there Steve. for listening, participating. I'm Steve Fortunato, and this has been Sidewalk Talk.